So, as I start the Dharma talk, before I start, I'd just like to invite you to, uh, to just check in for a moment, because it seems like we've gone from a lot of uh, silence, and now with the breaking of the silence this afternoon, and talking with each other, and now with the, the um, manager's announcements, energy arises, and it's not wrong, it's not a mistake, it's really part of the process of starting to to get integrated and, and uh, go back home, but I just want to invite you to just sit with it and acknowledge, just observe what is happening, what is arising, both in the body in terms of energy, Excitement, vibrations, heat, tightness, lightness, whatever it is. And whether in the mind it shows as, uh, as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, the experience. whether it brings with it some aversion or fear or not wanting or some excitement, some associated with pleasantness. And how is it recognized? What is the perception? Oh, this is just like another retreat. Oh, this is, I get this way, I get anxious this way, this is anxiety or this is just, what is the label the mind is putting on this experience? And by the way, some experiences, are ex- they feel exactly the same in the body, but the mind puts a different label on them. Excitement and anxiety, they both can feel like bubbles percolating in the body. But the mind puts a different kind of mark, a different kind of label on these different, on these similar physical manifestations and reacts very differently between excitement, which is positive, usually, and the stress of anxiety, which is considered negative, but in the body they're similar. So notice what's happening and what label the mind is putting on it. How is it perceived? So with that, with that checking in into our bodies, to what is happening right now? What is the reality of this moment? What is the perceived reality? What is it? What is it like? What's happening in the body and the mind? I'd like to go back to the first question I asked, beginning of the previous talk. What are we doing here? What have we done? What are we doing here? Just to get a sense. So, investigating the perceived reality of experience. And the reality is in 
out there, as we've been talking about, is really reality is the personal reality, from the personal to the universal. From the personal to the universal. So we start again by setting the container of kindness. Setting the container of kindness. And then we proceeded after setting up a container of metta as much as possible, proceeded to calm the mind, establish samatha through the breath, sound, body. And then it was an invitation to examine the body, kaya gatasati, kaya gatasati, mindfulness of the body through the four elements, Kayagatasati. I love that. It's both your putter and your iron. I'm not going to forget that, Bhante. <laughs> Kayagatasati. It's actually mindfulness of the body does have um, quite a high place in the teachings as, as a primary form of practice. So through investigating the body, body, form, rupa, rupa in Pali, R-U-P-A, rupa. Then we opened up to examining the mind, how the mind relates to the body. And then, having examined a few mental factors, such as contact, Pasa, Vedana feeling tone, Sanya perception, and Chetana volition. Then, with the discourse this morning, Sayada Ujagara shared and presented the way really the impermanence, the, the nothingness, the nothingness, the impermanence, the not-self nature of all of the aggregates. That rupa form is like foam. Vedana, feeling tone, is like bubbles on a river. They show up all the time. There are so many of them. They just show up on their own all the time. These feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, just they're everywhere. Sanya perception, like a mirage or a mirage, mirage. <laughs> I actually like mirage, it's kind of fun. Or, and uh, the sankharas led by, which is sankhara, the mental formation, which is led by, um, by volition, chetana, as this hollow tree, as the wood of the plantain tree. And uh, what I love about this analogy, as I was discussing with someone today in the meetings, is that especially with chetana, with volition, we think like it's ours. We think like, oh yeah, chetana, it's, it's, got, it's got wood in it. It's got, you know, it's got 
You know, the other ones are foam and, you know, bubbles and mirage. But this one, what I love about the, the simile is that it looks like wood from far away. Because Chaitanya, volition, feels like, yeah, it's mine. There's, there's some force in it. But actually, when you cut it down, it's just, you just peel it off and it's hollow in the center. There's nothing there. That too is conditioned. Volition too is conditioned. That too is hollow is conditioned by causes and conditions. And then consciousness itself, like a magic show. Like it's hard to kind of see what's going on. It's, it's like it comes and goes and it's like, yeah, it is a magic show. So, so what is the point of this simile? And, and why are we presenting it that way? Because as it was brought in earlier, um, Part of this practice is seeing things as they are. Seeing things as they are. So we've been practicing vipassana after we calm the mind, after we started with metta, and then we calm the mind with samatha. Now we've been practicing vipassana. Okay, how? So first, the word vipassana from the Sanskrit prefix V and the verbal root pas, it's often translated as insight or clear seeing, but it can also be translated as to see in a special way and to see through, to see into, to see through, or to see deeply, to see something deeply. So when we actually see, for example, when we've been sitting with the four elements, practicing four elements in the body, and feeling the sensations come and go, they come and go and come and go, they arise and pass away, they arise and pass away. Did you notice that? They weren't constant, they weren't fixed. They kept coming and going and coming and going and coming and going, right? And with Vedana, with feeling tone, did you notice it kept changing? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it just kept showing up all the time. And even sometimes, perhaps with the same object, the Vedana would change. It would feel pleasant, then it would feel unpleasant. Maybe the same food, the first bite would be, oh, so pleasant. And then if you kept eating the same rice, like the... 30th spoonful would not be so pleasant. It would become unpleasant. It's the same object, right? Changing, the ever-changing nature of experience. Or noticing perceptions. You hear a sound, like you think it's this, but it's, oh, it's actually that. Or you see someone from far away, oh, is this that person? Oh, no, that's somebody else. Perceptions changing all the time. And of course, with consciousness arising and passing away. And as we talked about earlier, consciousness also, consciousness arises, for example, ear consciousness arises, the arising of a sound. And when ear consciousness, the sound, and the ear, the three of them make contact, that's the point of contact. Contact happens at that point. But 
what can be seen, and we've discussed that with some of you in, in practice meetings, that, that the mind can just see that, oh, sounds are heard by themselves. Ear consciousness arises by itself, and then it passes away. And another moment of ear consciousness arises. And then eye consciousness arises and passes away, etc., etc. So everything is just arising and passing away all the time, all the time. So with that arising and passing away, seeing the impermanent nature, seeing that things do really arise and pass away, and also moods, I can make this more general. Have you noticed how how this past week, your moods, how they changed? One moment you, you felt jubilant and happy, and the next moment sad, another moment anger, and just a whole slew of emotions. Anyone not experience that? Changing emotions, coming and going, change all the time. And it's so interesting when the mind, say the mind is, say, sad or, or angry, and it feels like, oh, this is never going to go away. It's always going to be like this. That's when actually impermanence works in your favor. (laughs) It is going to change. Of course it's going to change. It's not going to stay the same. It's like the saying for the weather in London. If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. It's it's like our mind. If you don't don't like what's happening, just wait five minutes. It's going to change. You know, you, you, like this morning, you woke up, you felt, felt a particular way when you woke up. Remember, how, how did you feel when you woke up this morning? And then how did you feel at breakfast? How did you feel at lunch? How are you feeling now? I mean, it's fascinating. It changes all the time. And that truth of change, of impermanence, changes all the time. And when something changes all the time, inherently it cannot be satisfactory, satisfactory because it changes all the time. You can't hang on to it. You cannot hang on to it. So it can't be deeply, deeply satisfying. Let me satisfy for a little while. For a little while it's very pleasant, but then it changes. Like, oh wait, I was really enjoying that. That was, or anything. I mean, Say you have a, a comfortable, peaceful, easeful sit. It's pleasant, it's nice. It's not going to stay the same. It is going to go away. But then the mind wants it. Like, oh, I want that. Then it becomes what? Then it becomes unpleasant, it becomes unsatisfactory, it becomes dukkha instead of sukha. A moment ago it was sukha, it was pleasant, and now because it went away, by the nature of it going away, by the nature of it being impermanent, it's not satisf- satisfactory. It's unsatisfactory. So, and also by nature, by, by, by things changing, by the fact that they, they change all the time, they, they do not have and cannot have a core, a core self. They, they are not controllable. So, So if, if I had control, if I had control over my body and my mind, I would not age, I would not get sick, a lot of things, I would not be cranky at all. There are a lot of things that I would have control over. 
but, but conditions keep changing in this body, in this mind. They keep changing all the time. My body keeps changing, my mind keeps changing, my moods keep changing. It just keeps changing. It's ungovernable. It's ungovernable. I can't govern this body or this mind. It's ungovernable. And that's one aspect of not-self. It's not me, it's not mine to control. It's not me and not mine. It just is. It's, it's cause and conditions that arise, pass away, change. And I'm just kind of, you know, it, it's a ride. This is the process. This being is a process. So that aspect of anatta, so, so let me just pause for a moment here before I talk more about anatta and not-self, which we touched into the first day, and I wanted to bring it it in again today. But what I've just described to you is an aspect of reality that we've kind of been subtly examining. We've kind of entered it into your examination when we suggested that you notice the, oh, the sensations coming and going, and oh, the the Vedana, the feeling tone changing and coming and going, Right? Oh yeah, it seemed like, oh, you were just checking out the coming and going of things. Guess what? You were practicing the three characteristics. Surprise! (laughs) So what are the three characteristics? It's exactly this. I mean, it sounds kind of high and mighty, but you've been practicing it. So the three characteristics are connected. They unfold. When you see one, you're seeing the rest of them. They unfold into another. So when you see change when you see things coming and going, whatever it is, that is anicca, anicca, impermanence, impermanence. And just as I was talking about, when you see change, by the nature of things changing all the time, you're seeing into dukkha, you're seeing into unsatisfactoriness, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. There are other ways to look into the truth of dukkha, that life inherently is not satisfactory, I mean, there's satisfaction here and there. Not, not to say this is just a pity party. Not, life is not a pity party. That's not the Buddhist message. It's just that you can't find deep, lasting satisfaction in things that just cannot provide it to you. They just can't. And when you make peace with that, I mean, at first it's really sad. You want to wail and... And then after you make peace with that, it's like, oh yeah, okay. They can't. So all right, that's cool. So I can, I can, I'm cool with that. I can roll with that. Instead of expecting, it's, it's expecting the, the right relationship, the right job, the right this, the right, the right clothes, the right friends, they'll, they'll all have aspects of unsatisfactoriness in them. Everything. It's just a part of life. It's just a part of this human condition. So by seeing impermanence and seeing the, the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, or actually rather looking for satisfaction where it cannot be found. And these can open up to the truth of not-self, that it is impersonal, it is ungovernable. This body and mind are ungovernable. And then that's the truth of anatta, anatta. And then when we see that, when we see that in different ways, that, oh, you, you don't control your perceptions, they kind of like pop up. Uh, you see that you don't control the Vedana. You don't control whether it's something appears pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It just does. It's just like winds blowing uh, in the field. 
actually that's a simile. Just all these winds, hot winds, cool winds, wet winds. It just blows. It's like, whoa, look at all these winds. When you see that, you take it rest less personally. You don't take everything that comes up in this body. You don't take all your pains personally. You don't take all your reactions personally. There's more ease. You realize that it's all part of causes and conditions. You see them. You see the impersonality of it all. And it doesn't mean that you don't exist. Yes, the relative reality is just as important um, as... um, as the, um, I don't want to say it's not, uh, paramatta, uh, translation of paramatta, I'm forgetting. Um, ultimate, no, actually there's another, yeah, ultimate, thank you. Ultimate reality. So, so, so relative and ultimate are both important. It, I think sometimes practitioners think that, oh, I'm, I'm so advanced, I'm going to, to live in ultimate reality and, and not in, uh, in relative reality, um, that can't be. You know, relative reality is just as important as ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, the way things are. So, what is ultimate reality? You ask. Just what I described. The way things are. They're impermanent. They're, they don't have a core. It's not personal. They're not self. They're not governable. They're empty, like foam, in that way, uh, as described earlier today by Bantu Jagara. And and yet. As a being, you exist, you have an address, you have loved ones, you have a function, you have a job. So living in the relative reality and opening up and embracing the truth of relative reality is just as important as holding and opening up to the truth of ultimate reality. And the way you take this practice home is when you actually see, you dip into, you kind of see the, the impermanence, you see the, the things that we have instructed you to see, the sensations of the body. Oh, it's, pain is just made up of these sensations. Look at that. And it's separate from, from unpleasantness, etc. So when you see these things, when you have a glimpse, and you don't have to see all of them, it's okay. When you just see some of them, when you see some of them even once, it opens your mind. So when you go back home, when you are in your life, you live a little differently. You take things a little less personally. It's not so much you. It's not, oh, it's my fault. It's this. You see the cause and conditions. It's come up so many times. All of these teachings have come up, both in our sharing and, and also in, in, in practice meetings, in different forms. You know, we may not say, okay, now we're discussing anatta. It's like, you come and say, ah, this is what's happening. Like, well, it's not you. It's cause and conditions. They're like, oh yeah, it's cause and conditions, and that's a moment of insight. And you take that home with you. That's how you take that home with you and practice with it. It's just simply that. It's not so heady. You've been doing it all week. So I want to say a little more about the concept of not-self, since it seems like an interesting, sometimes curious teaching. So there are lots of different ways to have insight into the nature of, of not-self. And, and we usually 
Um, I actually like to say not-self instead of no-self because no-self almost seems like it's denial of self-existing, and that's not the teaching. The Buddha didn't teach that there is no-self, just as Bhante Ujjagara said. The the Buddha didn't didn't say that there is self does not exist. He also didn't say that there is a permanent self that has a center and continues to... um, roll along or be reincarnated. Rebirth is different from reincarnation, by the way, so I'll talk about it in a moment. Okay, I'm piling up more topics to talk about. Okay, all right, here we go. So, um, so, so yes, yeah, so he said neither of those. And in fact, there is this famous story of, um, of the wanderer Vachagata. Did I pronounce that right? Vachagata? Vach- um, he, um, he comes to the Buddha and asks... Is there a self? Buddha doesn't answer. Then he asks, is there no self? The Buddha doesn't answer. He kind of gets frustrated and huffs and puffs and leaves. And then, um, I think it's Ananda Sariputta, Sariputta asks. I think Sariputta, anyway. I'm, I'm going based on memory, guys. Cut me some slack. Okay, I think Sariputta says, why didn't you answer? Uh, Buddha, why didn't you either assert or not assert? And say, well, if I had said there is a self, he would have fallen into the eternalist camp and thought, oh yes, there is a self that continues and etc. So if I had said there is no self, he would have fallen into the camp of nihilists, that there is no self, it just doesn't exist. So it was best that I was quiet. Because it's neither of those are the case. It's somewhere in the middle. And what is that middle? So that middle is... On the relative sense, yeah, you exist, you know, you go along your day, and it's perfectly fine to, to, to be in that reality, and to know that this is a process. You have no control over your body. I mean, as I said earlier, you can't stop aging. I can't stop aging. Or doing a whole lot of things I would like this body to do. Or a lot of things that this body does I have no control over. It's not me. It's not myself. And also my mind, as much as I would love to be never cranky, I'm cranky. It just happens, right? It's, it's ungovernable. It's, don't have choice. As, as much as I, you know, different things I like to perceive everything as pleasant. No, there's plenty of unpleasant Vedana that arises. Plenty of perceptions that I wish they were different. But just, it's ungovernable. This is just this body and mind. So, so seeing that, that is an aspect of of not-self, not to take it so personally. And in that, there is freedom. In, in that seeing things, when you see things clearly, when you see things clearly through those lenses, that is liberation. That is freedom. So that is the practice of freedom. It's not any different. And then... I guess I brought in the idea of reincarnation and rebirth, so let me bring that in also and talk about that a little bit. So, so the idea in Buddhism with, with not-self, as I'm describing again, is that self is not... Um, I mean, nothing is really personal. It's all born of cause and conditions. And again, as judgments come up, we know we take judgments so personally. We're so ashamed by them. Oh, I'm judging people again. I'm judging myself again. I'm the bad person. Oh, it's all cause and conditions of how you were raised. 
all the experiences you've had in your life, your genetic makeup, all of these things you have no control over, all condition a particular response, something to come up. Not to say you don't have responsibility. So not-self doesn't free you up from responsibility, right? Because there is still wisdom, because one can still see how this whole thing is operating, right? You can see how it's operating. And wisdom can come in and say, no, 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 okay, let's, let's go this way. You know, when you take a pause before you speak, this is a practice that we'll talk about more when you go home. You take a pause and you notice the volition is, oh, just say something really nasty right now because it's coming from, from pain or, or, you've, or you were hurt. In that moment, it's like, whoa, 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 okay. Ah, can I have some metta to myself and to the other person? That can be a moment of wisdom and that can change. So there is still responsibility and there is choice in the midst of this ever-changing process of mind and body. So it doesn't free up, free us from responsibility. So, okay, so I'll go back to the uh, rebirth and reincarnation. So, So the teaching in Buddhism is that there is no eternal self and your body is not yourself because it keeps changing. Your consciousness is not yourself either because consciousness keeps changing to keeps arising and passing away. It keeps arising and passing away. So the teaching in Buddhism is that what gets reborn, and also there is no belief in reincarnation but rebirth, which you may or may not want to subscribe to. I'm just describing to you so you know what it is. So reincarnation is the belief that the same Atta, the same self, the same soul, the soul gets reincarnated into another shape or form. Okay? Buddhism does not have reincarnation because there's no soul or self or the center. What it is is that what gets reborn, because you're a process, right? There's a lot of process. And yet, you have choice. You put forth karma by the choices you make in your life. You create karma. Right? You create karma by the choices you make, by the skillful actions, unskillful actions, half skillful, half unskillful actions, neither skillful, no. So, all of those, there is a creation of this karmic potentiality. There is karmic potentiality that that is not a person, it's just the cause of condition. So, that karmic potentiality, that energy, that gets reborn as another being. That is not you anymore. But the best analogy I've managed to come up with is a billiard ball. So with a billiard ball, imagine a billiard ball in motion. It's moving, it's moving, it's moving. It comes and hits another billiard ball. This one stops and this one keeps moving. Okay. Is it the same billiard ball? No. It's a different billiard ball. But what has been passed on it's the karmic potentiality. It's the potential energy for those physicists out there. So it's the potential energy that gets, hits this one and this one moves. So that karmic potentiality is the energy of this one. The, all the good intentions, all the bad intentions, all the good actions, bad actions that kind of like pop this being into existence and another being is created. Is that clear enough? Yeah. So that's the idea of rebirth. 
So it's not you, it's central, but it's the karmic potentialities that get reborn into another life. So, so keep, keeping it practical, I mean, it's already practical, but, but just to say a few more words about um, taking the practice home, specific practices, taking them home. And again, as you've seen some things differently here, as, as they've become cracked open, that's where the light is going to come in more and more and more. And you get to see that more and more in a different way. You'll have a new perspective. So with, with perceptions, for example, the, I'll go back to the example of pain. If you did manage to see your body, this, the physical sensations as just raw sensations, and if you manage to see any pain that you had just as physical sensations that had an unpleasant label attached to them, and then, and oh, I don't like it attached to it, then you see, oh, it's, you've broken the compactness of pain. You will never relate to pain again. If you did see that on this retreat, if you played around with that, you'll never relate to it ever again because now it has cracked open a little bit. You might still see it, oh, pain, that's first, but it's like, oh, wait a minute, okay, let me check into that. Ah. So that's, that will be different. Volition, when, you, when you're in your daily life, when you are about to open your mouth and say something, you won't remember it every time, and it's perfectly fine. Be easy on yourself. But there are some times that you might remember volition of you're about to do something, or you're about to send that email. In fact, well, something I thought about years ago would be great to implement is, um, you know how when you send emails there's a subject line? You have to put a subject, what the email is about. It would be awesome if there was an intention line. But intention would be something only you would see. Nobody else would see. But you get to put your intention in there. So you know what is your intention in the email you're sending. Wouldn't that be cool? So, so since that, since Gmail and your other servers don't have that, maybe you can have your own intention field. What is my volition? What is my intention for sending this email right now? Email has become such a form of communication these days, and, and we do a lot of good things and a lot of damage <laughs> through, through emails that we send nowadays. So, so that can become a practice of volition that you take home. What is my intention? In terms of perceptions, to not always trust our perceptions, not always trust our perceptions. I was telling someone a story earlier today in the practice meeting. Um, some retreats ago, um, actually, I, I was sitting a retreat some time ago, and my yogi job was to wipe the tables. And it was an advanced practitioner retreat, and um, wiping the um, the lunch table, I noticed there was a lot of uh, mess, like a lot of food on the table, a lot more than usual. And per- seeing that, I perceived, oh, come on, this is an experienced practitioner retreat. Come on, can we be a little more mindful, like putting our food? And so there was a judgment and like, okay, I'll wipe it. And it was part of my job. And I kind of noticed that there was like, I perceived that to be sloppiness. My perception was that somebody's being sloppy. They're not paying attention. Okay. The next day, 
I saw there was one of the yogis I hadn't noticed. It was an 80-some-year-old yogi who was with a cane and had severe tremors. And he was trying to serve himself out of the food, and the food was going everywhere. Oh, oh my goodness, how can I support you? How can I help you? Like, oh my goodness, that's what's happening. That's what that is. Perception. Perception. So that perception was causing me suffering because I perceived it in a particular way. And when I perceived it differently, oh, it's completely shifted. It went from judgment to complete metta and compassion. Perception. So perception. Having, having perhaps you know, especially the times, and, and I'm sure each of us can tell stories of the time that we perceived something some way and caused ourselves a lot of hurt and suffering, then turned out, oh, it wasn't that way. Oh, it wasn't that way. So how can, how can be, we be a little more um, open, not so closed, especially when perceptions seem to be causing harm to ourselves and we get fixed in them? It, a lot of it comes to not taking it personally. Not taking it personally. And through repeated seeing of, of, of any of these, they lose their power. Earlier today, someone asked about seeing the volition that comes in, in some repeated thoughts of, I'm a smart person, wanting that to be a thought. Wanting that to be, seeing, seeing I, w- I want to be seen as smart, seeing that, driving a lot of planning, driving a lot of thinking, seeing that volition, saying, oh, it's okay, now what? I see that. Now what? Well, great. It's fantastic that you see that because that is the way it's going to lose its power because you see, oh, that's what's happening. And not to take it personally, you just see it and you see it again and again. It's going to keep coming up. And every time you see it, it's going to lose its power more and more because it is seen. It's not hiding anymore. Things go, er, continue to control us, like a marionette, when we don't see the strings. When we see the strings, it loses its power. It, it just automatically loses its power over time, over time. So clearly seeing them is exactly what you're doing. Yay, keep doing that. Keep seeing, keep seeing. So I wanted to say just one thing about this enchantment, which came up earlier too, and this is a good time on the retreat to talk about that also, touch into that briefly. So... As we said, I mean, disenchantment, it actually, the word in English sounds really awful, pretty negative, disenchanted. But, but actually, it's a very positive word. And even in English, it can be a positive word. And I can tell you, we'll tell you how. So in Pali, it's nibida, nibida. And in English also, imagine this. Imagine... 
imagine you are completely enchanted with something. You, you're a child, right? You're a child. You're completely enchanted with, with toys. And, and you love playing with them. You love your dolls or your trucks or whatever it is. Um, and then when you get older, when you get a little older, you don't hate them. You just grow out of them. You still see them. It's like, oh, look, my toys. Oh, I used to play with them all the time. Um, and you don't dislike them or hate them. It just, they don't hold power over you. They're just not that enchanting, right? You don't believe that this is, this is the way you want to spend all your time. No, you've grown out of them. So that's the idea of disenchantment. It's, it's actually a spiritual maturity. It's a spiritual maturity when you're not enchanted by what you were enchanted by before what you thought, and, and it actually goes, you're enchanted by beating yourself up, say. You're enchanted by being really, really harsh on yourself. And you thought that was the way, being self-judgmental, that was the way that, you know, you get things done, and then you're just not enchanted by that anymore, you know. That's not personal, that's not the way it is. Just not enchanted with that anymore. Just lack of enchantment. So, so, on the path to, to awakening, this is a stage that actually happens, becoming disenchanted with things that were enchanted before. And it doesn't necessarily mean um, it's bad. There can be a little bit of kind of unsettling feeling about it, like, wait a minute, what's happening here? I like these toys, and now they're not that interesting anymore. So, so there can be a little unsettling. And if... If you find yourself at some point in your practice going through that stage, it is a good idea to have um, support of a teacher and a guide. Um, to just, you know, shine some light in the path and hold your hand. And it's not a bad thing. It's just part of spiritual maturity. And it's also not something to wish for, to want to make happen before it actually naturally happens for you. It will, na- it will find you. You don't have to look for it. It will find you when, there, when the time is right. You will find it in your experience. So I want to close. I have so much material. My goodness. Okay. But I'm going to stop and just close. Um, I'd like to close with this. Yeah. So as we are, as we have been, examining reality personally and opening to the universal and holding it all in a container of metta, in a container of, of kindness and compassion. I'd like to share a couple of things with you, actually. One is, one is a poem. I think it's, well, a writing, a poem is a reflection which I think is quite lovely and apt. It goes, All things are contained in space, in knowing, allowing for everything without exception. This unconditional acceptance, love and compassion surround and contain us, unfailing and eternal. In such a world, Why hold on to worry? 
for worry itself is also loved. It's quite lovely. Thank you for that. And I'd like to end with a quote from Kalu Rinpoche. We live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That's all. That's all. So with that, let's just sit together for 30 seconds or so. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That's all. That's all. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.